Hi, I'm Don Cameron. And I'm Kat Lovericks. And we are your co-hosts for a new intellectual property law podcast series brought to you by Breskin and Parr LLP. You can find our episodes at bereskinpar.com slash podcast, and there you can access all the episodes and additional information on each topic. So let's unpack that introduction a bit. Uh, Kat, this is our very first BNP podcast. And on these podcasts, we'll be presenting a variety of topics related to intellectual property law. That's what we do here at BNP, patents, trademarks, copyright, industrial designs, privacy, advertising, and regulatory work. So in my opinion, what makes this place special is all the really smart people we have down the hall. And we're going to be talking to some of those people in this and upcoming podcasts. So today's podcast is called Countdown to Canada's New Trademark Laws. And I know a lot about countdowns, but Kat, you know a lot more than I do about registering trademarks. So what are the big changes to Canada's trademark laws that we're going to be hearing about today? Uh, okay, spoiler alert. Today we'll be hearing from Jonathan Birkinshaw and Tamara Weingust about a sea change in Canadian trademark law. Jonathan and Tamara are going to highlight the key things that every in-house lawyer, brand manager, and marketer should know. From simplified filing to use not being required to secure a trademark registration in Canada to new types of marks that are available for protection. Jonathan and Tamara will run through cost implications and new systems that will be available for Canadians to file abroad. We'll hear the good the bad, and the unsure, if not the ugly. So I'd say tell me more, but let's let our two guests do that. So one of our guests today is Jonathan Birkinshaw. Jonathan is a partner here in our Toronto office and has practiced for over a decade. Jonathan deals with all aspects of brand protection, including brand clearance, trademark protection strategy, prosecution and enforcement. He represents clients in opposition and cancellation proceedings, and he manages the trademark portfolios of large Canadian companies as well as companies around the world who operate in many different diverse fields. And our other guest is Tamara Weingust. She's an associate. She's also in our Toronto office. She's in two of our firm's practice groups, trademarks as well as copyright and digital media. Tamara does a lot of trademark prosecution and opposition work, and occasionally that makes her an unofficial part-time member of our litigation group. Interesting fact, she has law degrees from Canadian and U.S. universities. Jonathan and Tamara, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having us, Kat. Thanks, Kat. All right, so let's start at the beginning with a quick overview. Tamara, what are some of the biggest changes coming to the Act? So really big, monumental, fundamental changes are, are coming into force on uh, June 17th, 2019 of this year. Uh, sort of 30,000 foot overview or taking that airplane, uh, the term of protection is changing. Right now, you can renew your trademark every 15 years. Uh, it's going to be changing to every 10. We're implementing a number of treaties, including some that require goods and services to be classified. Uh, Canada is becoming part of the Madrid international system, so Canadian applicants will be able to file, have simplified filings uh, when going internationally. And likewise, uh, those coming into Canada wanting to file an application to Canada could take, um, could avail themselves of that international system. Uh, there are going to be new types of marks that can be filed for uh, and protected in Canada. There are going to be some changes to examination. Um, and of course, there are going to be changes to fees. But perhaps the single largest change um, and the one that's generated the most discussion uh, over the last five years while we've been waiting for these changes to be implemented is how use interacts with the Act. All right, so let's start there. Use. Is there any good to this change? Tamara? There is good news. 
the major change is that we've simplified our filing grounds here in Canada. So prior to the new act coming in, applicants would need to choose from very particular grounds. For example, if they have used their mark in Canada, they would have need to have identified the date since when they had first used it. If they were relying on their foreign registration, they would also need to identify a country where they had used the mark before filing. Um, and if the application was filed based on proposed use, they would need to later on in the application process before the registration would issue file what's called a declaration of use. So basically, use was that gateway to obtaining registration. Um, and that is being removed. Now, applicants are going to be able to file on a simplified single filing basis of use or intent to use. And that's going to help applicants a great deal. Um, it's going to declutter and, and decomplicate decom uh, the filing process because now we as lawyers won't, won't have to chase you to identify before we file and perhaps delay the filing as to when you started or where you started. The other thing that's really going to help with eliminating that and those filing bases is that applicants are now not going to be tipping their hand by declaring since when they had used the mark in filing their application. So that can help preserve a little bit of privacy. Thanks, Tamara. I'm sure that the audience will be pleased to hear that there's good that comes with use being eliminated um, from as a core tenant to the Canadian trademark regime. There's been a ton of concern, though, surrounding use being eliminated. Jonathan, I'll turn to you to outline some of the reasons for those concerns. Thanks, Scott. The elimination of the use requirement is impacting on all uh, areas of trademark practice. Um, there's two main categories of this impact. One is that there's a more crowded register, and the other is that there's less information on that register. So uh, applicants are filing more applications for more goods and services. Um, this is going to lead to the crowded register, um, more oppositions, more non-use cancellation proceedings. Um, the timing of this uh, introduction of the new law has had an impact as well. So the new law was first announced in 2014, um, and in the five years in between, um, applicants have been taking advantage of the fact of this upcoming elimination of the use requirement and the fact that the fee structure has remained the same in the meantime. So currently, you pay a single fee uh, for any number of goods or services or classes. Um, and so applicants have been filing um, applications for goods and services in all 45 classes. There are some companies that have filed hundreds of these applications. Um, so the register is getting more crowded. So what kind of marks are you seeing um, in terms of those filings? Are, th are they a problem during examination already? Yes. Uh, these, um, a lot of these marks by the uh, so-called trolls are single words that are um, fairly uh, desirable marks in, the, in all 45 classes. And so you're, I'm bumping up against them in almost every search I do now. And so these applicants paid one flat fee to be able to register the mark in all 45 classes? Yeah. Wow. So the, the other big category of impact is that um, limiting this use requirement and these filing bases means that the register has less information on it. Um, so we no longer know if an applicant has been using its mark for 50 years or whether it's just intending to use the mark. Um, so what this is going to mean is clearing a mark is going to be more difficult. When you look at a, the results of a register search, um, 
you'll have to do further investigation to see whether um, a mark is in fact in use uh, and what it's being used for. So when you're clearing a mark, um, it, right now you can look at the register to see what the use claims are and sort of surmise whether or not um, it is in use. So I guess once all that information goes away, we'll be left to our own devices to try to figure that out. So I mean, currently if you're doing a search for, say, a pharma mark, you might come up against, you know, five similar marks filed by a single company for, you know, every pharmaceutical product under the sun. And you can know that they're probably going to end up picking one of those marks at the end of the day and maybe for a limited subset of goods. But under the new regime, all five of those marks could issue a registration um, or be sitting on the register for a long time and you won't know. And is there any measure that's being introduced to try to temper that? You know, presumably there will still be a requirement to have some genuine intention to use the mark. Are there any new grounds that are being introduced that will um, help to rein that in a little bit? Yeah, well, I mean, on a practical level, um, the something we'll talk about a little later on is uh, the fee structure is changing. So the fees are going to be, application fees are going to be um, per class. So you'll, you'll pay a fee for the first class and then an extra fee for every additional class. So these 45 class applications, I think, will almost automatically be eliminated by this. Um, but the the government, the Trademarks Office, um, did respond to um, this so-called trademark squatting um, by introducing some new um, provisions. Um, one of them is a um, invalidation ground based on bad faith, and that's actually uh, came into effect even before this, the major amendments that come into, are coming into effect on June 17th. I think there's going to be room to challenge some of these applications in oppositions um, based on whether they actually intended to use and whether they had a good faith intent to use. So well, I guess we'll have to sh see how this all shakes out. You also mentioned that you anticipate that there will be non more non-use cancellation proceedings associated with it. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so the Trademarks Act has uh, a provision called Section 45, and it's used to eliminate uh, Deadwood from the register. So uh, the Trademarks off you write to the Trademark Office, ask them to start the Section 45 proceeding. They send a letter to the owner of the registered trademark that requires the owner to um, file evidence of its use of the mark in the last three years in Canada with the goods and or services in its registration. And if the registrant doesn't answer, their registration gets expunged. If they file evidence, but it only shows use with certain goods or services, then the registration gets amended uh, just to those goods or services. So then use is still relevant, but just after registration. Yeah. And when is the period that marks will be vulnerable? So it's three years after the date of registration um, is the earliest that a, a non-use cancellation proceeding can be brought. All right, thanks, Jonathan. Uh, tomorrow, I've heard rumblings about the non-use cancellation proceeding or procedure, rather, also being amended. Do you want to comment on that? 
Yeah, so they're just a couple of small little tweaks. Um, the first one is that the registrar is being explicitly granted the power to commence these types of proceedings. Um, and I think the hope early on was that um, the registrar would really avail themselves of that to try to get rid of some of these Deadwood, some of these so-called troll applications should they ever issue a registration. Um, the other thing that's changing, um, and just to dovetail on Jonathan's point, about the pharmaceutical marks is those requesting uh, these non-use cancellation proceedings to be started can approach the registration more surgically. Um, so you don't need to do scattershot across all of the goods and services in the application. You can focus in on certain goods and services um, for which the registrar will request that proof of use. Thanks, Tamara. So I guess Practically, you're still stuck waiting for a registration to mature three years before you can do that. So in terms of other opportunities to challenge, um, Jonathan, you mentioned that you expect to see far more oppositions. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, well, I mean, it's good news for us. Um, there's going to be more oppositions with the more <laughs> register. Um, there's also going to be more oppositions as we just sort through the implications of the various um, different changes to the legislation. And there's so much uh, uncertainty about what some of the new language in the new act means. Um, so it'll take a few years of, of oppositions um, to set, sort that out. The other thing I wanted to mention is um, there's a new uh, letter of protest procedure. It's actually not called that. It's a notification of prior rights. Um, and that's an opportunity for someone to write to the trademarks office and inform it um, of a prior registered trademark or prior filed application or bring to its attention that you know an application is using a registered mark um, in its description of goods or services. Um, so that's a very simple, um, inexpensive uh, procedure that can help catch some of the things that examiners might miss. And so to take advantage of that procedure, I guess you'd need to be watching not just for advertisement, but for marks that are um, applied for so that you can send a letter to the office while they're still in examination. Are you seeing clients set up watch services and things like that in anticipation of the new law? Yeah, we've been recommending to our clients to um, set up watch services and change the timing of them or you know, add a new one with a timing, like you said, to catch things in examination because I think practically um, it's more likely that the examiner will act on your, your letter of protest um, at that stage, but it is actually possible to, to file it uh, any, at any time up to registration. And, and that sort of combines with the registrar's new power to revoke uh, advertisement. Uh, so the Trademarks Office has been uh, sort of, they've had a road show over the last few months uh, going around talking about the new law. And uh, one of the things that they clarified is that with their power to revoke uh, advertisement, sort of dovetailing that with the letters of protest, if, you know, if an examiner receives a letter of protest and sees a third party mark that they think, hey, maybe I should have raised an objection, the office now has the power to sort of move an application backwards a step and put it back into examination, even if it's moved to the next stage. Interesting. And I know that there's also a process now where the office will notify third parties if, in cases where the office is allowed an applicant to overcome a confusion objection, but the office isn't fully persuaded. Will that continue under the new regime? 
Yes, um, they're called Section 37.3 notices, and I, I can't remember at the moment if it's going to be staying under the same subsection of the Act, um, but certainly the office is going to at least be able to continue issuing, issuing those types of notices to rights holders. And do you expect it to lean more heavily on that process, or do you expect it to examine more heavily? You know, it's really up, it's really up in the air right now. Examination is going to be changing so fundamentally, um, as we'll be getting into later. Uh, there's going to be a new grant of examination and sort of new procedures and processes that will be coming along with that. Um, and with the anticipated increase in filings, um, both domestically and coming in through the uh, international system, through the Madrid applications, uh, we're going to be seeing a lot more examiners examining a lot more marks and applications. Okay, and then uh, just before we move on from use, any uh, big implications from a litigation perspective? Jonathan, you want to take that one? Uh, sure, yeah. So um, we've been talking about these non-use cancellation proceedings that can be started um, you know, three years after registration issues. Under the new regime, it's theoretically possible that um, someone could have a trademark registration not have used it in Canada or anywhere else, but that but could then bring uh, an infringement or depreciation of goodwill proceeding. Um, and so this is a bit of a bizarre situation. And the, the government, the Trademarks Office, um, is proposing um, a new requirement that uh, if that owner of the mark wants to sue within those first three years, um, they must show use. Um, we don't know when this change is going to come into effect. Um, so this basically means that um, you know after the three-year mark, if someone is sued by an owner of a mark, they can then respond with a non-use cancellation proceeding. But this uh, step will sort of force the owner to um, show use in the, if they're suing in those first three years. Wow. So right now it's possible for someone based solely on paper rights to launch a lawsuit? As of June 17th, it will be. <laughs> Well, our litigation department will also be busy. <laughs> um, okay, so turning on or turning to uh, another topic, uh, tomorrow when you kicked us off, you mentioned that there will be a whole series of new marks that are introduced. Jonathan, do you want to give an overview um, of the types of new marks that marketers should get excited about being able to protect? Yeah. Um, so for the last well, hundred years or so, uh, the Canadian trademark system has been based on the notion that. Uh, a trademark had to be a mark, something that could be uh, graphically represented. So uh, the trademarks that were registrable were you know, words, slogans, designs, combinations thereof. Um, it was also uh, possible to protect uh, the shape of goods, uh, the mode of packaging of goods. Uh, these were called distinguishing guises. Uh, and then a few years ago, um, the Trademarks Office uh, permitted uh, sound marks to be registered. Uh, so I filed uh, an application for the Tarzan Yell back in 2012. Um, I can hear it as you said it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we can also currently um, register color that as applied to the surface of an object. Uh, so what's an example of that? Uh, while there's been a lot of attempts to register colors applied to um, the surface of like pharmaceutical pills, uh, I recently ha had a case where I, I came across a um, color applied to uh, a tub for hand cream. Okay. Um, so under the new act, um, 
basically anything uh, can be a trademark. So the definition of a trademark doesn't refer to a mark anymore, it refers to a sign or a combination of signs. Um, so just to quickly run through some of the things that are specifically listed, uh, color per se, um, you know, orange for Home Depot or green for John Deere tractors, uh, motion marks, hologram marks, scent marks, uh, taste marks, te texture marks. So what's a motion mark? Uh, I think that's intended to, to capture a, um, you know, a short, uh, I, I think I saw one example and it was a motion mark of the, um, the chocolate orange being split into segments. <laughs> <laughs> so would a bumper for, for example, when I turn on Netflix, the Netflix logo moving, is that an example of a motion mark? Is that the type of thing they're talking about? Yeah, I think that would work there. Okay, and then you also mentioned scent, taste, and texture. Yeah, these are interesting uh, kinds of marks. Um, scent marks is, um, there's a few registered in the, the US. A lot of those marks are um, scents that are uh, sprayed in various retail stores. Um, and in the US, they take the approach that um, a scent can't have um, any function other than as a brand identification. So they don't permit um, scents marks to be registered for um, fragrances, perfumes, air fresheners, that kind of thing. So Chanel number no. five and um, famous perfume scents are, are likely to or not likely to be registerable? Well, that's, a, that's the big debate right now. I mean, if we follow the U.S. approach, I, we probably won't um, protect that, but I think there's, there's room for debate that maybe those could be registered. Hmm. Um, so that, I should mention that there are um, going to be a number of hurdles to registering these marks. Um, Tamara mentioned that there is going to be a new uh, ground of examination, and that is uh, distinctiveness. So if the examiner is of the view um, that the mark is not inherently distinctive, they can ask for evidence of acquired use um, from before the filing date, and the applicant has to file that with the office. So, so, oh, sorry. so, so for listeners that may not be familiar with the concept of distinctiveness, what does that mean? basically the, the function of the trademark to identify a source. So uh, practically speaking, um, right now we have distinctiveness examination for distinguishing guises, those marks that are like the shape of um, goods or mode of packaging of goods. And to overcome that hurdle, applicants have to file evidence of their use uh, and advertising of um, their mark in Canada. Okay. So how does that apply, how is that likely to apply to these new types of marks? Well, the new law makes it clear that all of these types of marks will, these sort of non-traditional marks like scent and taste will be uh, presumed to be not inherently distinctive and that evidence of distinctness will have to be filed um, um, to support the application. And what are some of the other hurdles that will need to be jumped? Uh, a big one is gonna be functionality. I think that probably, um, applies to the situation in the U.S. with scent marks. If a mark, if the scent is functioning to, you know, improve the smell of your room or your personal smell, um, <laughs> then it, maybe there's less room for it to function as um, brand identification. Um, the other issue is the uh, Canadian Act, um, even though it, you know, eliminates a lot of the aspects that are based on use um, didn't fundamentally change the definition of use um, with respect to goods and services. So 
uh, a mark is deemed to be used with goods if it's um, marked on the goods at the time of sale or if it's otherwise associated with the goods um, at the time of purchase such that the consumer um, is aware of that association. Um, so something like uh, taste marks are problematic uh, from this perspective because um, in theory it would require the consumer to be tasting the, the product or experiencing this taste at the time that they're purchasing, even before they've you know, paid for these. Um, okay, and so what about the traditional hurdles to registering a mark? What about things like descriptiveness? Are th those likely to be at play? Yeah, those will continue to apply, and I think des descriptiveness in particular could um, come into play in, in some of these uh, non-additional marks. Hmm. There's also an additional factor of uh, utilitarian function that is now explicitly included in the Act. Um, so if, if a mark, whether it's a word mark or design or this type of mode of packaging or a scent has a utilitarian function. Functionality is uh, played into a number of um, flavor marks, at least in the EU where pharma companies have applied for various you know, fruity flavors for their pharmaceutical products um, but have been refused on the basis that those flavors were actually functioning to mask the awful taste of the pharmaceutical product rather than be a source identifier. Yeah, with a seven-year-old, I can I can agree that the banana taste banana taste of the penicillin is the only thing that makes that medicine go down. Um, okay, so next up, um, Tamara, I've heard about with respect to these marks, there are a few draft practice notes that have been um, issued, and I think they relate to how to describe these marks in part. And there's also a little a few glimpses in uh, that are provided through them in how the TM office is likely to approach this. Can you just um, comment on those practice notices briefly? So in the lead up to the implementation of the act, the new act on June 17th, the office has issued a number of direct draft practice notices that at some point we're hoping they're going to formalize. Um, <laughs> but right now, they are in draft form. Um, and one of them pertains to non-traditional trademarks. Um, now, before I get to that particular practice notice, sort of the, the step back is that even though the definition of what could be a trademark or what could be applied for a trademark is going to expand, the office is really asking applicants and requiring applicants to be very particular as to the type of mark that is being applied for. Um, so for example, if what is sought is just a word mark um, without any designs or flourishes, then it needs to be filed in a particular way. There needs to be a statement that it is a, a word, a standard character mark. Um, if let's say the applicant wants to file for a design that's in color. Uh, currently, all application, all designs need to be filed in black and white. Um, under the new act, if color is uh, forming part of the trademark, if it's part of the design, the design needs to be filed in color. So those are a lot of trademark agent problems that we're going to have to work through. Exactly. And when you move over to the non-traditional trademarks field, uh, the practice notice has set out uh, quite a detailed uh, list of the various types of non-traditional trademarks that it's anticipating seeing. For example, as Jonathan mentioned, motion marks, taste marks, uh, three-dimensional representations, color per se, texture, scent. Um, and they go through each of these marks and identify 
what is required to claim them in the application. And sort of the overarching theme is the statement of what the mark is um, and a description of the mark. And for a number of them, for example, um, for motion marks, depictions of the mark are also required to be put in. Interestingly enough, for taste uh, and scent, the practice notice does not require a specimen to be um, to be filed, just a clear and concise description of the taste. And it gives the example of the trademark consists of the taste of black licorice. Um, for a taste mark, for scent, the trademark consists of a scent of strawberry. Um, or the trademark is a coconut scent diffused through a retail store setting. So mm -hmm. query how these are going to play out in practice um, and what sort of descriptions the trademark office is going to accept and what it's going to require to be revised. All right. Thanks very much. So uh, to, to wrap, let's talk briefly about um, the things that will um, keep many of us up at night, which is how are we supposed to now file abroad and how do um, foreign companies file in Canada? And also uh, briefly, let's give an overview of um, cost and what all of the cost implications are. So Tamara, do you want to kick us off with um, the filing, new filing regime? Absolutely. Um, so you can always file domestically, uh, just straight into SIPO. But as mentioned earlier, Canada is also ceding to the Madrid system, uh, which is an international system uh, where applicants, based on their application or registration in their home country, can then file to a central authority in Switzerland uh, called the International Bureau, which is a part of the World Intellectual Property Organization, or WIPO, that sort of administers uh, their mark centrally. So they get what's called an international registration, and with that international registration, they're allowed to designate filings to be filed in uh, other countries that are parties to the Madrid system. So on June 17th, Canada is going to be part of that, uh, which means that Canadian applicants who want to file abroad uh, can apply for an international registration, obtain one, and then begin designating other countries to have their trademarks filed in. And what's going to be advantageous about that system is that um, no matter where you're filing, you're going to be paying that central authority, the International Bureau, uh, fees in a single currency. Um, and from a, a, a lawyer's perspective, what's really going to make everybody happy is that because you're filing through this, this certified central authority, uh, the need to get powers of attorney from your clients is going to be removed if you're filing through that system. So some paperwork is going to be removed. Well, that's a huge, um, that's a huge thing that's being lifted off of, um, administratively off of foreign filing requirements. Um, well, it does sound like this system will make it easier for our clients at least to file abroad. We may have a headache trying to figure out how to navigate it, but it sounds like it'll facilitate um, foreign filings for Canadians, which is certainly good news. Um, so Jonathan, turning to fees filing domestically. Yeah, well, if you're listening to this before June 17th, 2019, the takeaway is file now, renew now. Um, so currently, um, it's a single $200.50 fee for um, an application covering any number of goods or services. After June 17th, it's going to be $330 for the first class and then $100 for each additional class. The, uh, the other change is that renewals will also be by class. So right now it's uh, a single fee of $300. After June 17th, it will be 
$400 for the first class and then $125 after each additional class. So in terms of filing, um, applicants should especially, if they have any sort of applications covering lots of classes, uh, they should try and file those now. Um, and renewals can also be a fairly significant cost savings. So my quick math was if you have a 44 class application and file it now, versus after June 17th, there's roughly $4,500 in official filing fee savings. Wow. I don't recommend filing at all, 44 <laughs> um, All right. Jonathan and Tamara, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your insights uh, with me and the audience. Very much appreciated. Thank you, Kat. Thanks. Our guests today have been Jonathan Birkinshaw and Tamara Weingust who are trademark lawyers and agents in the Toronto office of Breskin & Parr LLP. Information provided during this episode should not be taken as legal advice. Jonathan, Tamara, and the rest of Breskin & Parr's trademark group would be pleased to advise you. You can subscribe to our podcast by visiting breskinparr.com slash podcasts. If you go there, you can access all the episodes, uh, additional information on each topic, and you can stay on top of what's happening with IP in Canada. So subscribe and follow us wherever you listen to your podcast. That way you'll never miss an episode. It's free and it notifies you when there's a new one. Thank you for listening to today's episode presented by Breskin and Parr LLP. Until next time.